let's just get right into this. Jewish poet and storyteller Noah Ben Shea tells a parable that I think serves as a valuable reminder of the roles that we all play in life. It was after a meal and some children turned to their father, Jacob, and asked if he would tell them a story. A story about what? asked Jacob. About a giant, squealed the children. Jacob smiled, leaned against the warm stones at the side of the fireplace, and his voice turned softly inward. Once there was a boy who asked his father to take him to see the great parade that passed through the village. The father, remembering the parade from when he was a boy, quickly agreed, and the next morning the boy and his father set out together. As they approached the parade route, people started to push in from all sides, and the crowd grew thick. When the people along the way became almost a wall, the father lifted his son and placed him on his shoulders. Soon the parade began, and as it passed by, by, the boy kept telling his father how wonderful it was and how spectacular were the colors and images. The boy, in fact, grew so prideful of what he saw that he mocked those who saw less, saying, even to his father, if only you could see what I see. But said Jacob, staring straight in the faces of the children. What the boy did not look at was why he could see. What the boy forgot was that once his father, too, could see. Then, as if he had finished the story, Jacob stopped speaking. Is that it? said a disappointed girl. We thought you were going to tell us a story about a giant. But I did, said Jacob. I told you a story about a boy who could have been a giant. How? squealed the children. A giant, said Jacob, is anyone who remembers we are all sitting on someone else's shoulders. And what does it make us if we don't remember? asked a boy. A burden, said Jacob. See, the opportunity to be a giant is something that presents itself to each one of us practically every day. And it comes in the forms of our interactions with other people. Are we going to use every opportunity to tell those around us how wonderful and how spectacular it is to be part of the parade that follows Jesus? Or do we only enjoy the parade ourselves and mock those who can't see. It's time for all of us to become giants and in doing so grow into one of the roles that God has called us to and that is as a vehicle of salvation for people in and around our lives. This is what Noah did for his family in the story of the great flood which we're going to look at in part today. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis first, and then we're going to briefly jump into Hebrews for just a, a quick moment at the end. But it's Genesis chapter 6. We will have the text up on the screen as well. Verses 11 through 22. Genesis 6, 11 through 22. So let's start at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, when I read verses like this, in particular verses from the Old Testament, um, it always takes me back to my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> because I grew up thinking that um, God was basically just cranky, unpredictable, and bent on destroying everybody. I'm just being totally honest. I mean, that was the impression that I had from what I heard and what was taught and so forth. I, I rarely, if ever, thought of God as good and loving. Just this, this example, and there are others certainly in the Old Testament, where God always seemed to be killing people and destroying nations and sending plagues. And, you know, it's sort of like, really? This is, this is, this is loving God, right? And this flood story would certainly reinforce that if you don't stop and think about it. Because I think we too easily gloss over the risk that God took in creating this world with its freedom. So if you read between the lines of these verses, it's not hard to see God's vulnerability exposed and the pain that he surely experienced at seeing his creation turning against him. So amidst all of the violence and corruption and destruction that you find in these verses, imagine what it must have felt like to have someone that you love so completely betray you to such an extreme that you have no other choice but to wipe the slate clean and start over. That's pain. And so... We have, to, we have a stark contrast here. We have Noah, who, verse 9, just a couple of verses before this, God, uh, the, verse 9 tells us that Noah walked with God. Okay. <laughs> what, isn't that how any one of us would want to be described? That we walked with God? That, that, you know. And so we have Noah, who walked with God, and then we have the rest of society minus his family, who were corrupt and just full of violence. And so you know, what we see is that the earth is continuing not at all as it had been created. And so you know, this violence that we see is probably manifest in lawlessness and injustice and just kind of a willful flaunting of the moral order um, and primarily manifested in deeds that violate other people, like, you know, like murder and you know, whatever else. And so the vices and violence and corruption are just sort of a natural consequence, an outgrowth of mankind's sinfulness. Not all that different, I guess, from what we would see today. Thank goodness uh, for that whole rainbow covenant thing <laughs> that you read about a few chapters later where God said he would never do this again. But the presence of those kinds of things 
really show a lack of godliness in much of civilization. And I, I don't, you know, it's no stretch to say that that's clearly what we see today happening. And so, moving on then, the next couple of verses, 14 through 16. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, five its breadth, or excuse me, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay. As his parents sort of floated him out to be found later to save him from the edict of, of being killed. Um, what's also kind of interesting is that just as they used this form of pitch, which we don't really know what that is. It's not a, a direct translation. It's the best English translators could come up with. But obviously, it's some sort of covering, tar or whatever, that would make the boat waterproof. Okay? The very same word is used again in that description of when they created Moses' little basket, his little ark. They coated it with pitch so that it would be waterproof. So I thought it was an interesting parallel. It's a different word that's used to describe the Ark of the Covenant. It's not the same word. Okay, different Hebrew word there. Um, anybody ever seen any gopher wood? Does anybody know what gopher wood is? I, I don't. They, you, you'll see it sometimes translated as cypress. Um, but that's, I'm not sure that's correct either. I think this may you know, this be a wood that uh, there's no good English translation for. Um, so anyway, so the dimensions of the ark are given in Hebrew cubits, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. And so a cubit, if you didn't know this, is considered to be about 18 inches or about half a meter. Um, so the ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet high. And I found this picture from the um, Creation Museum in Kentucky. Now, if you look really closely, like right here and right here, those are people. So that just gives you a little bit of perspective <laughs> as to how big this thing is, okay? Um, so it was to be made with a roof, finished within 18 inches of the top, and, you know, the... The space up there, it's really never specified what this was to be used for. Um, it's got these small kind of window-like openings, but best guess it would be to admit light, circulate air. Obviously, he re Moses released, or Noah, released a bird through that, you know, when the time came and so forth. Uh, it had three decks and a door in its side. And I've got some more information about it we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, we don't really know actually what the ark was shaped like. It's kind of anybody's guess. But it was probably more rectangular shaped than it was like we think of a boat. Um, because such a boat, it would use space very efficiently, it would float comfortably, and it wouldn't capsize very easily. Uh, and, I, and I think we have to keep in mind, the purpose of the ark was not efficiency in motion, of, in motion or navigation, it was survival. Right? They were in this thing just to survive the flood. They weren't really going anywhere. Um, although, you, you can see that a modern ocean liner 
or like an aircraft carrier, kind of have that same box-like shape, even though they obviously are designed uh, for navigation. All right, verse 17. It says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son wi sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And so, by declaring his intention now to destroy the entire world by means of this flood, God is informing Noah of his intention to enter into a very special relationship with him, with Noah and his family, and it's called a covenant. And this is actually the first mention of covenant in Scripture. Um, and a covenant is really nothing more than a contract or an agreement which is expressing God's gracious promises to his people, and then also sort of defines their relationship to him. Um, and so since uh, Noah had a wife and then had three sons, and each of the sons had a wife, it's a total of eight people that would be saved uh, by this ark. First Peter 3.20 says, In the ark only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And what was interesting was, I, didn't re I never had realized this, but have you ever seen a baptismal font that has eight sides? That's why. It's because of the eight people that were saved from the flood in the ark. So it's symbolic of those eight. So if you ever see a baptismal font that's, I guess, uh, octagonally shaped, that's why. No charge for that little bit of information. <laughs> no extra charge, actually. So this covenant was made with Noah and his family. Um, but then God also commands Noah to bring all of these animals with him, right? All these creatures, male and female, to keep them alive. And then we see later uh, in Genesis 7-2, this is expanded to require that certain animals he, he was to take seven pairs of, not just two pairs of each. And, and this is what I found particularly fascinating. This came from the Ryrie Study Bible, and it contained this information about the ark. So based on the dimensions of 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet, it's estimated that the ark would have had a displacement of about 20,000 tons and gross tonnage of about 14,000 tons. Its carrying capacity equaled that of 522 standard railroad stock cars, each of which can hold 240 sheep. Only 188 cars would be required to hold 45,000 sheep-sized animals leaving three trains of 104 cars each for food, Noah's family, and range for the animals. Today it's estimated that there are 17,600 species of animals, making 45,000 a likely approximation of the number Noah might have taken into the ark. So and if you're wondering why they decided on sheep, because they felt like between bugs and elephants, that was kind of an average. Okay, so that's why. 
Plus, and this was something I guess I had never really thought of, it didn't necessarily have to take adult elephants or whatever. They could have taken young that would have obviously taken up much less room um, in the ark. So, and after the flood, though, what's, what's kind of cool is that basically God is saying he's making a covenant not only with Noah and his family, but with every living creature that he took with him. And so, let me come to the last verse of this section, 22, which is, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. So Noah's response to God's word is, is simply noted as Noah did what God asked him to do. It's pretty amazing, actually, if you stop and think about just how bizarre God's request was. Because Noah really didn't live near any, any water that we know of, certainly not an ocean. And then the whole time he's doing this, which took, what, 100 years? thereabouts, his neighbors are making fun of him. You know, and you can imagine this. You'd think maybe they'd get bored after a while. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking it probably got worse. 75 years in, you're still doing this? <laughs> really? <laughs> you can just imagine how much, how much fun they're making of him. But the point here is that, you know, godly obedience is very simple, but yet it's very profound at the same time. I think sometimes we forget that. And then, just to jump in a little bit to where we were last week, Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah shows his faith in response to this specific warning that he gets from God. And he, it's demonstrated, obviously, in the building of an ark. And his faith was effective not only for himself, but for his whole family. Right? Because they were saved along with him. So he believed and acted on what God told him. And in doing so, his, face gra his faith grasped that unseen reality that was God's word at that point. And that, that he literally became an ark of salvation for his entire family and thus saving them. Okay, so that's the story. So what I want you to sort of take from this is this idea that as a follower of Jesus, your job is to get other people into the ark. <laughs> your job is to get other people into the ark, just like Noah did with his family. So how do you do that? What's the, what's the plan? What's the secret? What do we learn, really, from what Noah shows us in this passage? Well, I, there's really just two things, I think, that jumped out at me, but there's two very profound things. And I think the, the first way that you get people into the ark is by believing that what hasn't happened yet will happen and then act accordingly. Right? So we talked about this idea that God instructs Noah to build this ark for this impending flood. Now, you may not know this, some do, some don't, but there are scholars that would believe that it had not even rained on the earth to this point. Like, the, never? like never. That the earth was sort of like, what do they call those things that, you know, have the domes over them? A, a terrarium? Yeah, so that the earth kind of was like a terrarium in that sense that didn't require any additional moisture. 
Um, now, no, we don't know whether that's true or not, but there are some scholars that will say that that was the case. Even if it, even if it had rained, there certainly would not have been a flood. All right, so this is, this is truly acting on stuff that he has really no way of even conceptualizing what it looks like, what it would be like. And yet, it's this power to believe what hasn't happened yet and then respond both in trust and obedience that's been used for decades by God to save mankind. And I think God wants us to have that same level of visionary faith and hope and obey what he's told us to do even if we don't immediately see what the results are. So what is it that hasn't happened yet that should spur us to action? I'll give you a hint. We don't like to talk about it. <laughs> no, you're, you're all cold. What I think it is, it's what the Bible says will happen to an unbeliever. Very good, Jeremy. But let's see exactly what Jesus had to say about that. So we'll look at Matthew 25. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then jumping down to verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who reject Jesus will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's what we don't like to talk about. And there's nothing temporary about this punishment either. Matthew 25:46 goes on to say, then they will go away to eternal punishment. Eternal being the key word there. Eternal punishment while the righteous to eternal life. We don't like to talk about that either. Here's something else we don't really like to talk about. There are no second chances after you die. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now your body may fall asleep when you die, but you will be resurrected on the great day. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's from Daniel. Thing is, even though your body may temporarily, temporarily sleep, your spirit is awake in the spirit realm. From, from Luke. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. 
So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And then from Matthew, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. So, cheery news. It's a feel-good sermon today. Well, actually, it kind of is. So let's pose, let's pose a question here. We're a Bible-believing church, yes? So that means you believe that is the fate of anyone who does not follow Jesus. True? Okay, good. Shouldn't that motivate you to action? Does it motivate you to action? When is the last time it motivated you to action. And I'm not, once again, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to all of you. I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Okay? But this is the reality of things, is that if we believe what God says in his word, which we all say we do, then we at the same time believe that there are millions of people, many of them whom we know, who are going to hell. Simple, straightforward fact. That's what has got to motivate us to do something about it. See, you have the power to be able to try to affect change in somebody's life. And so the question really is, are you going to choose to use that power or not? But aren't we by fear? fear that someone's going to be, uh, to go to eternal punishment. Yeah, is that bad? Well, we're not afraid of God. We're afraid of what's going to happen. If you were not a believer in Jesus, Ray, and you're my friend, then I'm afraid for what's going to happen to you when you die. I'm not afraid of God at all. See, God? So that's the, that's the deal. So that's point number one. Number two, I think you can get people into the ark by showing others what salvation looks like. All right. So, over these decades of building the ark, Noah is sort of testifying to God's faithfulness. And he's, as he's building this, he's really showing his family who God truly is. And so, it was his faith and his obedience is what achieved this mechanism, this vehicle of salvation that was the ark that resulted in his entire family being saved. 
And it's the same with us. It's just as that happened for Noah, our faith and our obedience should result in others around us seeing the true rescue of Christ's work on the cross and thereby come to an understanding of what they need to do as well. It's simply about living your life in such a way that others take notice that you're different from everybody else. I, you know, I've, I've used this a million times, I, I feel, but it, it always seems to come back to this. I had someone tell me one time, this was early on in my faith journey. He said simply, you don't have to go around telling everybody you're a Christian. Just make sure it's not a surprise to them when they find out. <laughs> I always thought those were extremely profound words, right? How do you respond to life when some adversity comes your way? What do the people around you see? How do you respond when you're disappointed in something? And what do the people that are around you get from that? What about if you have an unexpected loss? Do you act in such a way that you believe there is a God looking out for you? Or do you flail about and wail and gnash your teeth and you know, act like it's the end of the world? What about when you have a tragedy in your life? Same question. But then look at the flip side of that. What about when you get a promotion? Do you gloat? Do you make your coworkers hate you? <laughs> what about if you get a sudden windfall? Remember, we've talked about the fact that you can tell what someone's priorities are by looking at their checkbook or bank statement. Does anybody else, does anybody really keep a checkbook anymore? So we got a couple. I was going to say, it's what about if you have some success? You know, does that, does success become you? Or is success in you off-putting to others? Or fame? See, it goes both ways. And we need to be able to show other folks what being a follower of Jesus looks like in all situations. You know, does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, of course not. It doesn't. There might even be certain situations that Jesus would get upset if he was in traffic. I don't know. Just a hunch. It wouldn't last long, and he would repent immediately. But the point I'm making is that's going to happen to all of us, right? We're, we're human. We're going to screw up. It's part of life. You screw up. You say, gosh, I'm sorry that happened, and you move on. But it's that kind of life that's attractive to people. It's that kind of life that gets people wondering, what's different about Jackie? Why do I, why do I like being around her? 
why does everything seem better, you know, when she's around? You know, it's that kind of a, a, a response that people have to you. Because you've got that, that, you've got Jesus in you. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. And you allow it to come out. So, what I want you to do, you, you, have, you have these two cards on your seat, okay? These are invitation cards. You're going to be seeing a lot of these cards. There are going to be two of these cards on every chair in this church for the next year. And what I want you to do is to commit right now to giving two cards away this week. Just two. Think about, you know, take it with you. Put it in your wallet, your purse, whatever. Don't leave it on the chair. Don't forget it. And then when you, I had an interaction. I went to the bank this week. My bank card had gotten all messed up, and so it was broken, so I had to go into the bank and say, you know, I need to order a new one. So I'm talking to the guy, and, you know, sort of comes out, well, um, I don't know what, it, he asked me if this was the branch that I usually went to, which is, I, and I went to this one that's right across the, right across from here. I think, I, is that right, that way? That way. <laughs> I'm a little, that's the back, right? That's, so I said, no, usually I go up to the Ashland branch, but um, I pastor the church that's right over here. He goes, oh, that's, um, what's it stand? And I said, Harmony. I said, yeah. So I, when he's in my wallet, I just pull it out. I said, well, here, you know, why don't you stop by some Sunday? That's all that it takes. I'm not talking about going through the whole salvation prayer with somebody or, you know, anything like that. It's just simply when you have an opportunity just invite them to church. All the details about when we meet are on the back. So it's all right there in a convenient size, no less. And so commit now to figuring out two people that you can give this to. And, and trust me, this is going to, it'll get to be a habit. Cliff is really good at this. I'm going to brag on Cliff for a little bit, all right? These are new, but we've had cards like this in the past. I'll, I would wager that Cliff has probably given out more of these to other people than the entirety of this church combined. Okay? Cliff is very good at this. So if you wanna, want some tips, there's your man. Just go say, Cliff, how do you do this? And he'll tell you what he does, which I think is pretty simple, honestly. He's like, oh, do you go to church somewhere? Well, here. Why don't you come to my church? You'll like it. All right. Let's land this plane. At the age of 13, Sean Swarner was a happy-go-lucky eighth grader playing in a basketball game when he heard a pop in his knee. The next day, all his joints were swollen. A few days after that, he was, dis he was diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma and given a prognosis of three months to live. 
He immediately began aggressive treatment, adding 60-plus pounds to his small frame as a result of various steroids and a no-holds-barred diet. While his friends were focused on trivial things such as what shoes they wore or how popular they were, Swarner was focused on fighting for his life. He borrowed a visualization technique he learned from his swimming coach and would imagine a microscopic spaceship flying around in his body with chemotherapy guns, killing all the cancer. A year after his diagnosis, Swarner beat the cancer and was in remission. He refocused his efforts on being a kid, playing sports, and in fact, he returned to competitive swimming. After being in remission for 20 months, Swarner went in for one of his regular checkups. It was then that he learned that doctors had discovered a new, completely unrelated cancer in his body called Askin's sarcoma. Not only was Swarner the only person in the world to have been diagnosed with both Hodgkin's and Askin's, but Askin's sarcoma has a 6% survival rate and he was given just 14 days to live. At that point, he started on treatment, the goal of which was to extend his life as long as possible. I heard a podcast and the interviewer said, so what was the goal of your treatment? And he said, to get to the 15th day. However, the chemo was so intense that he was put into a medically induced coma for each cycle and the radiation was so severe that he lost the use of one of his lungs. Miraculously, Swarner beat the cancer again, even though he does not remember anything about being a 16-year-old. He was basically in a coma almost the entire time that he was 16. Understandably, he wanted to enjoy the lost years of his youth. So in college, he focused on having fun and decided to become a psychology major to eventually help other cancer pa patients. He said he basically became John Belushi in Animal House, was in this podcast is what he said. That he had he'd missed out on high school, so he was going to make up for lost time. <coughs> then one day he decided that to really help people and to make an impact, he needed to scream hope from the highest platform in the world, Mount Everest. With only one lung, Swarner became the first cancer survivor to summit the peak. Ironically, an illness forced him to stay behind at camp on the day his group attempted the summit, which they weren't able to reach due to inclement weather. After recovering from being ill, the weather cleared, and Swarner was able to summit on his first attempt. However, he didn't stop there. Since Everest, Swarner has gone on to become the world's first cancer survivor to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam, scaling the highest point on all seven continents and then hiking to the North and South Poles. On his last trip to the North Pole, he carried a massive flag with names of thousands of people touched by cancer. He's now preparing to run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Sean Swarner beat a three months to live prognosis 
then beat a 14 days to live prognosis, lost a lung in the process, and then climbed Mount Everest after training for only nine months. Most people train for several years before they do that. And in doing so, he became a vehicle of salvation to an untold number of cancer patients, cancer survivors, and to anyone who has lost hope. Thankfully, <laughs> Jesus is not asking you or me to do anything close to what Sean Swarner decided to do. But he is asking us to quit sitting on our hands and get out there and do something. You can encourage people to get into the ark with you and to be a vehicle of salvation simply by making it a point to hand one of these cards out every chance you get. And like I have said over and over again, you get somebody here, you get somebody new here that has not heard the gospel, I will make sure they hear it. Deal? All right, guys, if you want to come back up. If I could get some people who... Uh, if I could get some people who, who really believe that Jesus is going to heal somebody today to come up here and pray. All right, that's who you go to. I have four people standing up here who really believe Jesus is going to heal somebody today. You have something wrong with you? Why would you not come see one of them? Seriously. All right, well, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for an inspirational story like Sean's. <coughs> Father, even though you're not directly mentioned in this story, we all know where that healing came from. We all know where the spirit to fight what was going on in his body came from. And Father, we're thankful that you have used him as a means to show us what is possible if we just become intentional enough to do something. And so Lord, I just pray that uh, just a microcosm of that same passion, that same desire, that same intentionality would flow down now upon each and every person gathered here. That by doing nothing more than handing a person a card, which statistics show us they're at least 80% favorable to coming in the first place. So why wouldn't we do it? So Father, give us the boldness that we need to go do that. Let us use this simple act as a mechanism to build your kingdom. And Father, 
quite honestly, we'd love them to come here, but if it does nothing more than spur them to go to church somewhere else, then God, that is a victory for your kingdom, and we rejoice in it. This is not all about Harmony Vineyard. This is about your kingdom here on earth and what it's going to look like on the day uh, that we're all judged. We're interested in seeing a lot more sheep than goats. So we give you all the praise and the glory, Lord. When somebody comes, we give you the praise and the glory. We don't take it for ourselves. Because we're simply being obedient to that which you've already called us to do. So Father, stir the passion up in us to be able to do that. I just give you all the praise and the glory, Lord God. And I ask this all now, in Jesus' name, amen.